0: Aaron and I want to start with a really big, heartfelt first bite. Thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half, and we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we. I mean, we work full-time, and this is this is a full-time gig on top of it, and we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet-talked the folks with SpeechTherapyPD.com, and as a thank-you giveaway, we have come up with a, a, a free podcast subscription. So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever so handsome goose and a bear, and that person will get a free Podcore subscription. So over 175 hours of continuing ed plus 19 new continuing hours each month. And there's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday, and the short course, nine series long, All Things Ethics with Elise. And that's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go. But once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And Seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. Hey, so by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed, plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools, to adults, to ethics, so be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the numbers twenty. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon.
1: Hey there, listener. This is Dr. Dakota Sharp, audiologist, clinical assistant professor, and lifelong learner, inviting you to join me on an exciting new podcasting journey known as On the Ear. As you know, audiology is ever evolving, so it's critical as professionals that we learn and grow as well. Every other Thursday, On the Ear will be interviewing a variety of clinicians and researchers, spanning a wide range of hearing and communication topics. From pediatrics to geriatrics, cochlear implants to vestibular, speech to hearing, and everything in between, this podcast will provide exciting insights that you can use in your clinical practice. Each episode of On the Ear is available for .1 ASHA CEUs when you complete the accompanying pod course through speechtherapypd.com. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels
0: and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's episode falls in the fed, fun, and functional categories. And y'all, we have back with us the amazingness that is the one and only Angela N. McLeod, PhD, CCC, SLP, featured in episode 103, Myth-Busting Orofacial Myofunctional Disorders. Like I said last time, I'm a little bit super biased because I love this lady, and she is Sweet Little Boo Bears SLP, who also manages to keep this worried SLP mama straight um, while Dr. Angela is helping sweet little boo bear find his R sound. Um, Also, my husband and I have come to the distinct conclusion that R is in way, way too many words. So we have that. (laughs) Anywho, in our last episode, this rock star educated as as to what an orofacial myofunctional disorder is and what it isn't. And us in on a very large puzzle piece that there are way more orofacial myofunctional disorders out there than what we think and know about. And that a lot of us are evaling and treating kiddos that have them. We just don't classify it as such because we haven't taken the, um, the coursework, the continuing ed. And so that's what we're doing today. We're going to cover the eval and treatment of those. Now, one of the things I love about Dr. Angela is that she is always so prepared. Y'all, I fly by the seat of my pants most days, Um, but not Dr. Angela. So when I asked her to send me three or four questions uh, to have prepped and ready for episode 103, she sent over 13. (laughs) So today we are covering the second half of those questions, again, all geared towards eval and treatment. And I promise we will get lost in the intricate details with a lot of description because let's face it, like we love that stuff. I thrive on those details. And I am sure every other type A SLP out there is giggling and nodding in agreement. So Dr. Angela, how are you? How is your sweet puppy, Lexi? And how's life?
2: Thank you for asking. I'm doing great. I'm fairly certain Lexi's doing great too. She's enjoying having me at home. Uh (laughs) Is she getting treats?
0: Dog and Chewie have gotten way too many treats
2: all the time. Yeah, I need to do yeah. better. Keep her on her routine.
0: Uh, no, um, Chewbacca's backside got so thick he broke our side door. He got stuck in the puppy gate, oh, <laughs> but wow. like, it's a little puppy gate, like you know, through the screen door. And he's gotten kind of old, so he doesn't bend as well as he should. So the bottom half of the door popped off. So, um, mommy. Yeah. We got, mommy got a new door. So we have that going. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, old chubby dogs. I love it. Okay. (laughs) So, um, y'all since our last session, I have to say Dr. R or Dr. Angela has rocked Boo Bear's R's. Um, and my husband pointed out that he, there is a direct correlation between there's tongue tip elevation and his eyebrows coming down in concentration. So the farther down his eyebrows are, the higher his tongue tip is. <laughs> I don't know if that counts as an orofacial myofunctional disorder or not. But like,
2: I think it's he's really probably, probably just working really hard to get that placement. That's what it sounds like. <laughs>
0: It is, but it, oh, that little face. Oh, my stars. I love them. Oh. Okay. All right. So last time we talked all about, and, and folks, if you haven't heard it, last time we talked about like what a disorder is and what's the training for a certified orofacial myologist. Um, and and it's a lot. Uh, also, it, it, it we, we framed it from the perspective of um, – our personal experiences interfacing with certain diagnoses, such as tongue ties and um, tethered oral tissues. And we did go there in the last episode. So please, again, go back and check that one. But uh, today, we're going to talk about evaling and treatment. And uh, after the last episode leading up to this one, uh, Dr. Angela pointed out that there are some prerequisites for a child in order for them to participate in or a facial myofunctional eval and treatment. So can you start us there? Like, what are the prerequisites? Because they were things I hadn't considered, like the ability to follow directions at a certain level. So what, are, what makes a child a candidate even for this type of treatment?
2: Okay. Well, I'll first just say that um, the reason there might be some confusion about What candidacy is, is that we as clinicians can passively or we actively intervene as the client is passive for certain um, features that could relate to an oral facial myofunctional disorder. For example, that infant who has trouble drinking from a bottle and ultimately has um, the frenulum clipped could indeed benefit from some exercises to work on tongue mobility to enable feeding. However, that is not the classic type of oral facial myofunctional therapy um, that would fall under that that label. Um, it's a related um, area. Obviously, um, feeding um, relates to ultimately um, tongue positioning and um, resting posture and function, But because the baby is actually benefiting from the therapist implementing the exercises, that's not the classic oral facial myofunctional therapy. Um, The classic oral facial myofunctional therapy um, is um, set up such that the the client, whether it's a child or an adult, um, actively engages in the tasks. um, And for that reason, back to your original question. Um, Some children who are younger than four are probably not able to benefit fully um, because they're just not mature enough to follow through with not only what goes on in the session, but also implementing those new skills into settings beyond the therapy room. So, um, for example, if your early sessions focus on teaching the child to maintain um the tongue in um let's say we call it the magic spot which is which is the there's are t- that's really hard <laughs> <laughs> um a younger child um may not attend and um follow through with that and so again this is um reserved for that child who's old enough to follow the instructions and then also to um, implement exercises and activities outside of therapy under the um, therapist's guidance and with the support of parents. So um, I guess in terms of if you had to um, summarize exactly what needs to be intact, I don't want to specifically say four, but I'll just say that around the age of four is when children are able to do that. There are some more precocious younger children. Um, who certainly could, with the parent's assistance, follow through. But four has, in my practice, has been a good um, sort of cutoff for what to look for. And then, of course, if they have problems with comprehension and retaining information, um, again, they may not be able to benefit fully. That's not to say they can't do any of the exercises, but candidacy could be affected.
0: Okay. So and so couple thoughts. Folks, when she's saying four or around four, remember that some of our children that have severe and profound intellectual disabilities or developmental delays, they may be six, but they developmentally may not be there. So just remember the difference between chronological and developmental, because I get one of one one of the weeds that we will get lost in, one of the tiny details. Also you said a trigger word. You said the word exercises. So we are not talking about non-speech oral motor exercises, right? Like these are not those, those controversial ones that don't care. Like these are, these are research-based things that are
2: being asked to be done, right? Absolutely. Um, One, one of the, and I'm glad that you brought that point up, Uh, One of the go-to resources that a person who becomes certified as an oral facial myologist um, would access is a text. It's called Oral Facial Myology International Perspectives. Um, There's a second edition that's the most current. And this was authored by um, an SLP, Dr. Hansen, and um, a dentist, Dr. Mason. And we consider it more or less a go-to guide regarding Um, oral facial myofunctional disorders. And in their words, the purpose of oral facial myofunctional therapy is to create an an oral environment in which normal processes of oral facial and dental growth and development can take place and be maintained. And so if you think of all of that, that goes far beyond the non-speech oral motor exercises that you mentioned. Um, We're looking at um, ensuring that both oral and oral facial and dental growth are normalized and that once the clients achieve these intended outcomes, they are maintained over time.
0: Perfect. Because that's, that is, that is a very hot button topic. Um, And I know that there are those in the camps that are like all non-speech oral motor exercises, they work and I fall in the, yeah, but no. (laughs) So, like, all right, so right out the gate, everybody's throwing rotten tomatoes at yours truly. Way to go, Michelle.
2: (laughs) Okay, if you think beyond speech, think about um, their airway. Are they able to breathe through their nose versus their mouth? That's beyond speech. Are they maintaining um, an open mouth posture? That's beyond speech. Are they swallowing properly? That's beyond speech. So, again, this is an entirely um, different set of skills that we're looking at when we're looking at them from the oral facial myologist's perspective than, you know, just the speech or only the speech.
0: Perfect. Okay. All right, so we have, so the questions that we left off are kind of um, they touch a little bit on um, well, a little bit on a lot. But can you start me with what's included in an
2: evaluation? Okay, sure. Well, um, typically we're going to want to get some sort of case history information, and that's going to um, give us information about how long the difficulties have been present. Sometimes we find out that there are things that started early on in the child's um, development. And I say child because um, a lot of the times, we're discovering these during childhood. However, we often evaluate adults who had ongoing um, oral facial myofunctional disorders, but who did not realize it until adulthood. So we, we do see adults as well. But the point is to get some idea of the history of the um, problems that are present, You know how long they've been going on, what has been done. Um, we find out about specific um, specific habits or tendencies such as snoring, um, if they're efficient when they're chewing and swallowing food, um, if they have thumb sucking, pardon me, thumb sucking, yes, um, breathing through the mouth, um, if they had enlarged tonsils or adenoids, um, if they some. Clients actually suck their tongue as opposed to their thumb. Um, There are just a range of things, but we get as comprehensive as possible a history from them. And then they come in for the eval. And during that evaluation, one of the um, areas that we cover is investigating oral structures and functions, but with great detail. So a, Um, An evaluation form, actually would um, examine, again, the presence of mouth versus nose breathing, or if there's some combination of the two. We look for um, air escape from the nose. Um, We actually look at the visual appearance of the face to determine. Symmetry? Yes, symmetry if the nasal bridge appears, um, to be in, intact in terms of size and appearance. Um, we look for discoloration, obviously red would imp- perhaps indicate inflammation. Blue would indicate, um, lack of oxygen. Um,
0: Wait, are you looking at skin tissue? Cause skin I'm tissue. thinking like under the eyes as well.
2: Yes. And in fact, um, sometimes if you see the blue um, coloration or purple coloration under the eyes—that's a red flag. We call those um, allergic shiners. And uh, I'm I only to- laugh
0: because I'm like, or lack of sleep for mommies, but the same thing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, the other name for that is Venus pooling. But what what causes that is that often there's um, if a person has chronic allergies the tissue in the nasal cavity swells and um, forms that blue coloration. They they look like little rings under the eyes, but absolutely. So if we're collecting case history information and they've had chronic allergies and then we see that, then of course that's significant. We, um, when we start the exam, we actually have them bite down and test the function of the masseters. Um, We, we look at the mentalis function. Um, we check for TN. Oh, she's she's talking
0: muscles. And case anatomy was that long ago that I was like, you said masseter. And I giggled inside and I was like, muscles, we went there. But yes, we're ta- we've are we gone back to speech pathology 101 to discuss muscles. Yes.
2: And the reason we check those is because often clients who have had long-term um, oral facial myofunctional difficulties could try and compensate for, um, their difficulties by overusing these muscles. For example, if tongue, um, keeping the tongue inside the mouth is not a natural tendency, they may overcompensate by sort of squeezing the lips together in in an attempt to prevent the tongue from being seen. And so, um, or lip closure, if, you know, they're mouth breathers and haven't habitually, um, had the um, sensation of their lips being held together, they may overcompensate and essentially closing the lips isn't a natural movement anymore. So um, I I think of another situation, if they have um, say a significant overbite or an overjet, it's harder to close the lips around those malocclusions, but the reason that the malocclusion is present could indeed be that the tongue has pushed the teeth out of alignment. So, you know, it relates. They can't close their mouth because the teeth are um, protruding too far forward. But the reason the teeth are protruding too far forward is that um, their tongue has habitually over time aided um, those tongue, those, I'm sorry, those teeth being misaligned. So we look for that. Um, And, and,
0: we talked about this in the last one, y'all. When she when they find this, this is what's really cool to me is that they very quickly refer out to allergy, ENT, and dentist. So what I love about I wish orofacial myofunctional disorders was not so difficult to say because every time I say it, I trip on it. But I lo- OMD. You, we can use the acronym OMD. Oh, thank you, Jesus! Yes, let's use that (laughs) because, like, now you know where Bear gets his Arctic stuff from, Angela. (laughs) Like, oh my God! But like, but that's that's a huge part of what I love about OMD treatment is that it is that holistic. It forces these SLPs to not be silo clinicians. Yes. Um, Yeah. So, sorry, that's just I happy, cheerful soapbox
2: moment there. And I'm glad that you interjected because when, you know, you asked me to talk about what the eval looks like, but I hadn't even talked about what to do if we find some certain of these features, because you're absolutely right. A number of these things are not within our scope. And of course we're trained to address what's in our scope and then to refer out for other things. And so if you identified those, um, allergic shiners or the venous pooling, absolutely refer the client to an ENT um, for um, what we usually do in our referral letters is ask the physicians to evaluate the competence of the airway, obviously, because it's their job to determine if the nature of what's going on with their medical problem does indeed impact airway. Um, We just see signs and symptoms that those features could um, be um, impacting the airway, but it's not our scope to say that. Does that make sense? Yes, so, yes, so, absolutely. So We're referring out for that. And then um, for adults, it's very common for us to maybe refer to a sleep doctor because, you know, if you think about it, you know, even if an adult has chronic allergies, they have managed by adulthood to somehow bring those, under control with medications or sprays or, you know, they're getting medical management, but perhaps the aspect of their their function in life that's still not intact is the sleep if there's a myofunctional disorder going on. And so we do refer out to sleep doctors um, for adults, probably more readily for adults than for children, although referring to a sleep doctor for a child is not is not unusual. It's just that those are probably covered by the ENT's assessment, the sleep sleep mm-hmm. problems. Yep.
0: Um, also, if you do have a little one that goes out for a sleep study, uh, when they put the electrodes on them, the leads, they're really, really difficult to get off. But if you sweet talk the sleep tech, uh, those uh, lovely little square um, I don't, they're like soaked in alcohol and they're like, it's a little sanitary cloth. If you get the hospital strength ones and you hold on to the lead, it will break down the residue and it makes it, they come off like butter. So not that my children have had those and I've had to do this numerous times, but just as a heads up. So make sure you make friends with a sleep check and you get those lovely little, uh, Hospital grade sanitary rectangles. Yay, go team! <laughs> okay, back to back to the eval. Do m- my big question: Does it include something to eat? Do you actually watch these kids eat and
2: drink? Yes, we um, have to observe. You know them with something liquid and something solid. So during that time, we actually um, observe for if they're able to maintain material inside of the mouth. If it happens to spill forward um, when they're attempting to form and manipulate a bolus or if it prematurely spills backwards. We uh, observe for how they're chewing and where they're chewing. Um, We observe if when they're consuming something, they're chewing with their mouth open versus closed. Um, We're looking at what the tongue, we're observing what the tongue looks like after they have chewed the material, um, have they effectively formed a bolus, um, or is maybe material, or I'm sorry, manipulated a bolus, or is maybe, um, material, um, sort of, um, collecting in one area of the mouth versus another. Um, some clients will actually, when they drink from a cup, their tongue will go out to greet the cup, which is not typical. And it's really because they're, they're sort of using the tongue to help um, bring the material into the mouth as opposed to putting the cup up to the lips to allow the lips to help take the material in. Again, there are lots of different things that could go on. So um, maybe a, a, a brief um, summary of what goes on is that literally everything that it takes to um, you know, breathe through the nose, everything that it takes for the tongue to rest properly in the mouth, Um, for the person to chew and swallow both liquid and solid foods will be examined in that um, um, OMD exam. We actually also, but we look at if they're drooling, um, you know, even before we give them something to eat or drink, that's, you know, we don't want to see drooling. Um, And as you brought up earlier, we do investigate habits, if they've had some sort of um, oral habits such as you know sucking their thumb or sucking other fingers. Um, we look at all of that, and then what our what what our goal is at the end of that de- session, at, at the end of that evaluation session is obviously to determine if they need therapy to have some idea of what aspects because this is you know there are several aspects of function that are investigated in that exam. So you're to identify. What types of skills need to be targets for therapy? And then the other piece is where do they need to be referred? Um, one thing that I, I did mention is that if clients say having um, headaches or reporting um, evidence of TMJ, they they may need referrals for, for medical management of that. Um, you know, sometimes clients have clenched their teeth so forcefully that over time they're you know, exhibiting pain. They have um, grinding of their teeth at night. Um, You hear clicking or popping sounds when you're getting them to open and close their mouth to, you know, when you're doing your oral motor exam. So um, you could end up referring out for that. There's some, I think, for example, physical therapists that focus have a focus in TMJ disorders. Some chiropractors do. Um, Some clients you know, just want a medical doctor who can give them some strong pain medicine. So
0: just a fun. We, um, you, I don't know if you knew it or not, but in the earlier part of the pandemic, I was teeth grinding at night so hard. I broke a molar in half. Oh, wow. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, my teeth were good. And then I had children and they literally sucked all of the stuff out of my body. And after goose and bear, like I had to have like three crowns, like totally healthy teeth, and then procreated. And that was the end of my mouth. But um, the the dentist was like, we should probably have a discussion. I was like, I'm not getting a mouth guard. I'm petrified. I will choke to death. (laughs) And that was the end of the discussion. But I say that because, y'all, we do this. We as clinicians carry our stress and do things to our face. And ever since we talked last time and then I cracked a tooth, I was like, what if I need this? (laughs) I've been kind of a – been like hanging out in the back of my mind like what bad habits do I have that have resulted in me you know cracking my grinding my teeth to the point that I cracked a tooth um
2: well every every client's um treatment plan is individualized and in some cases it's a combination of an appliance plus exercises in other cases it's an appliance only in other cases it's exercises but um, it really just depends on what all is going on.
0: Okay. So one, I want to know what the appliances are. And two, we talked about it in the last episode, but it is of merit. One of the things that I have seen with some of the certified um, orofacial myologists, and one of the things that had honestly turned me off to it before you know, you and I had talked was that I'd seen a lot of folks posting pictures of a tongue static, not in function, but just static. And folks were diagnosing um, tethered oral tissue issues based off of the static. But you make it very clear that this is not static, that this
2: is... Right. You know, again, if you think about the name, it's myofunction, so muscles working. Um, it's, It's very difficult to tell anything about a static image or the tongue in a static position. So you're wanting to actually see it working to make the proper decisions about what's going on. Okay. So what are the appliances? Okay. So some of them, um, if a client, for example, has sleep apnea, sometimes they can make, um, appliances that, um, fit inside the mouth to essentially keep the airway open during sleep. um, there are some specialists, for example, there could be a, a dentist that specializes in sleep medicine who c- custom makes these devices, you know, to fit clients. Um, they make similar devices for children. Um, I know of at least um, two dentists who have made other appliances, say, to um Reduce the thumb sucking habits for children. Um, is that,
0: is that a palatal obturator? Is that what that one's
2: called? Am well, I saying that right? Um. Well, palatal palatal obturators, from my understanding, are for clients who may have had um some other type of um, um anatomical um deficit that warrants putting something in there to close. For example, a person with an un Unrepaired cleft. Okay. They, they expander.
0: Have- That's the word I got it confused with. A palatal expander and palatal obtubator. Those are the two I always get backwards. Yes. Okay. Yes.
2: The expanders are are used by um, orthodontists a lot for clients who have these disorders. But what I've seen is that um, sometimes when the when the orthodontists are inserting the palatal expanders, they will still refer the child for myofunctional therapy, because if not, then the orthodontic work um, may be in vain. Sometimes clients experience what we call orthodontic relapse, and so they're best used in conjunction with some type of myofunctional therapy. Sometimes it's not um, that the therapy has to go on in conjunction with the use of the expander. For example, I worked with a child recently who because of the expander, some of the exercises that were designed um, for his treatment plan couldn't be implemented. He just could not get his tongue into the positions needed because of the appliance being there. but there were still things that were done to educate him and his parents so that he could eat properly without you know protruding his tongue to on his, onto his teeth or um you know otherwise improperly moving his tongue. So it's not always that um, you're able to go in and just do your treatment protocol from start to finish without interruptions. You may have to put some, some aspects of your treatment on hold depending on what's going on with this child. And in his case, I ultimately decided to put his therapy altogether on hold because he had gotten far enough into the um, SLP treatment with the OMD therapy to reach a plateau until that we knew what was going to go on with this orthodontic work so
0: I don't see old enough kids I mean like most of the little ones I see are like under the age so I can't even fathom having to do a treatment plan with I mean I I just go back
2: it relates to what we said when we started out the true um oral facial myofunctional therapy really isn't that's not what it's called when it's the younger children. I mean, it, yeah. there are aspects of that kind of treatment that you're doing, but it's not literally walking them through an oral facial myofunctional disorders protocol because they just can't do it. So. Okay.
0: Okay. All right. So then how do you design the treatment protocol? Am I jumping the gun? I am so no. excited because – Okay. Because no, I not. saw – I When you and I were doing it last time and we got on the website um, and we were working through the website, there's all these things that you're putting in people's mouths. And it made me – I have such a strong gag reflex that just the – I can't even – Angela, I can barely do an x-ray, a dental x-ray without almost yakking on the lovely dental hygienist. And so like – when I see those devices, it gives me a little bit of anxiety and it makes me think of the non-speech oral motor exercises. And I know that that's not the case, but well, I
2: was going to, I was going to, I was going to say that, um, with any kind of therapy we do, we want things that are easier versus more difficult and things that the clients are likely to do outside of our presence than things that they only do when we're present. So some of the things that you may have seen may have been implemented because the client couldn't do them on their own. For example, um, one of the very early skills that we look for when we're starting a treatment protocol is for the client to be able to elevate the tongue tip to the spot, which is again, right behind the alveolar ridge, and then be able to maybe maintain that tongue in that position for a certain amount of time. Well, if they can't do it on their own, that's when we would actually use tongue depressors or these tools that look like coffee sticks, the coffee stirrers, and we use, you know, tactile input to give them guidance for how to do that. But then once they're able to achieve the intended position and movement, we we are hands out. You know, we don't actually need to facilitate it anymore. So, Sometimes clients have just been more or less um I won't say resistant, but it's difficult to remediate ingrained habits. And so they they need the help per se. So you you know, going in, you try to get them to do it on their own, just with your verbal input and maybe some visuals with a mirror and your models, but if they couldn't do it, then you would resort to using some of the the other um strategies.
0: Y'all, I have seen her do this with Bear. Like I could describe a position of a tongue to my kid and he'd be like, nope. But Angela did it over the screen in teletherapy and he just like, his tongue was there. I was like, "How? what voodoo was this? <laughs> like what magical thing? I mean, he's trying and his eyebrows are all contorted, but like he, he got it. And I was like, well, all right then. Okay, so... I." Do you, is there like a strict protocol that you have to follow or is it more, are you able to design the protocol, the treatment protocol per each kid? Like, is it more individualized or is it more, this is the,
2: it's definitely individualized, but there are certain um, tasks or exercises that are um, known to, to facilitate certain skills so, for example, the training that I went through, they have a manual that essentially outlines everything that a clinician needs to walk a person through um, from evaluation through discharge using a specific protocol. But if there are other aspects of the client's profile um, that I need to address that say aren't covered within that protocol, then I may supplement with other resources. Does that make sense? You always want to individualize treatment um, and you always want to be effective. So if something doesn't work from that protocol that you have in mind to use, you look for other resources.
0: Okay. Okay. That's, that's okay. So can you give us an example of like common treatment protocols? Like I know that they're individualized, but can you walk us through what, I mean, feel free if you want to use bear, (laughs) but
2: like help. (laughs) Okay. So let's say a client is having difficulty with just awareness of where the tongue needs to be at all times um, because they have habituated that anterior tongue placement and resting posture of the tongue such that it literally may be protruding um visibly from the lips or sometimes it's invisible meaning they close it behind the lips but it's still resting on the teeth then your your first course of therapy would be to build their awareness of where the tongue should be and so you might have them sit in front of a mirror and look at you and elevate the tongue to the tip um I'm sorry the tongue tip to the roof of the mouth behind the teeth and you're talking with them, letting them know this is where your tongue needs to be all the time. And then you'd set a criteria for what warrants um, moving on to something else. So if they can do that on demand when you ask them to without thinking about it X number of times over X number of sessions, then you move on to something else. And so a similar a similar exercise for just awareness might be that you use um, Syllables that start with alveolar sounds or end with alveolar sounds like um, la or da or ta or na, all of them start with the tongue tip behind the alveolar Mm And So they are maybe to say each of those syllables several times and pay attention to where the tongue tip is. And then if they are successful with that, you have them combine the syllables. So they're sort of doing a syllable string, la, ta, da, na, in each time, ensuring that their tongue returns to that, that spot. And then, um, another thing is like the, the t sound that the T, um, sometimes you would have that client to say, just, um, produce the T crisply several times, t. I don't know if this is, is audible, um, given that we're using audio and not video, but the key is that they um, are aware of the tongue tip being at the alveolar ridge and that they're able to build up enough pressure to produce that plosive sound. <laughs> because again, think of it this way. If a client has not routinely used certain muscles, the things that seem intuitive to you and I won't be intuitive to them. And so your treatment is literally in, in sequential steps, teaching them to use muscles that they either haven't used or they haven't used in a long time. Um, another um, exercise might be um, moving the tongue, like sticking the tongue out and um, trying to on their um when they want to their volitional control being able to move from a flattened tongue to a pointed tongue and going back to a flattened tongue and then transitioning to a pointed tongue
0: um, um you you had us do that, and I struggled to do that
2: and now if I could like work with you in therapy, like if I physically if COVID-19 were not going on and we could have a face-to-face session, there are um, techniques that I could use to help facilitate those movements um, as a result of the training protocol that, that I completed.
0: Yeah. This is, this is probably why multisyllabic words are hard for me because my tongue does not move at
2: the rate that it
0: should. Yeah. Okay. All right. So then, all right. So every. Every treatment is individualized and there are exercises, but these are, these are not non-speech oral motor exercises. These are distinct Mm -hmm.
2: muscle function exercises.
0: Yes. Which is y'all it's hard to discriminate. And I know I'm asking y'all to go out on a limb and, and wrap your brain around it. But trust me, it's, it's different. And I've seen them work. For lack of a better phrase, does that make sense?, still yes. am I butchering it
2: yeah. no you're you're fine mm-hmm.
0: okay, okay, so then, I have so many different questions I don't know which way to take it next. um
2: let's maybe we could talk about because we've talked much about the exercises and. Um, treatment being individualized. Maybe I'll talk some about um, what we do with nutritive substances in a therapy. So instead of just isolated exercises, um, sometimes we'll have the client um, say, take a sip inside the mouth. And then what they're supposed to do is initiate a successful swallow with that, without pushing material back outside of the lips. Um, Because, again, clients who are, we talked some in our last meeting about tongue thrust. Do you remember some clients who are um, tongue thrusting will actually push the material outside of the mouth? And so, again, they've done that for a long, long time. And your therapy needs to teach them the right placement of the tongue when they swallow to prevent that from happening. Um, Another thing you may see is if a client habitually chews with their mouth open it's not intuitive for them to remember, close your mouth when you're eating. So they may eat a snack or in some cases a meal in front of you and they have to self-monitor and um, talk with you about their episodes of chewing with the mouth open. Um, Another thing is that, you know, sometimes they have trouble. We talked about the bolus control. Maybe they're, chewing on a certain section of their mouth as opposed to utilizing you know, the full range of um, space in their mouth for um, chewing and swallowing. So we work on that in therapy. Um, again, every client's treatment plan is individualized. Not every client that you test will need all the exercises in a protocol but you figure out what, you know, what they need to work on and build up their skills. Um, Let's say you've got a client who's been a mouth breather. You may have a nose breathing task on their treatment plan where they have to um, practice like occluding one nostril and breathing through the other and alternating that, but keeping their mouth closed.
0: Okay. So would they, if, but what if, what if that's impossible? Is that where they would follow up with the ENT? I
2: was going to say you wouldn't start that, though, until you've ensured that their airway is competent. That's a good point. I, I mentioned it earlier, but maybe didn't emphasize it. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why after the eval, you send them for an assessment of airway competence, because you absolutely can't expect them to not want to breathe through their mouth if they can't.
0: Um, do you ever have to eval a kiddo and then put them or an adult and then put it on hold?
2: Yes. Um, Okay. Why? Because if, for example, if their, um, their airway is incompetent per se, some of the exercises such as the one I just described may not be, well, it isn't, they aren't appropriate until we ensure that they are. Um, able to successfully read. And so you may just defer treatment until that's been investigated. Um, in other cases, it may be that you work on the things that are unrelated to that and then revisit that once the airway issue has been resolved.
0: Wait, wait, um, talk me through when you see a tissue that does give you pause. And folks, last time we went through and discussed the research talking about like the prevalence of like, um, appropriate or overdone um uh laser resections or surgeries, but um do you do if you see the presence of a tissue and you see that it's functionally impairing, is that do you put that kiddo on hold until after they've fallen followed up or
2: yes, if it's if what you're going to be working on is um uh, related to feeding and swallowing. Um we have again find who are um our go to Professionals are in the community and referred to them. Um, in Columbia, I'm aware that there are a couple of ENTs that are doing um, tongue tie procedures. There's at least one periodontist that uses a laser technology um, to do it. But yeah, we go ahead and refer out for those to be addressed.
0: Yeah. And, and folks, it's um, I know the doctors that she's talking about, they make sure that what they're working on is actually imp- in- necessary. So how blessed is our little city? There's a lot cold the town doesn't do right, but that's one of the things that they do do right. So, woo!
2: <laughs> I went to um, a continuing education um, conference um, rather recently. It was before the um, pandemic We were faced with the pandemic, but unfortunately, that doesn't go on everywhere. There were some clinicians who had no referral person or no one that they could refer their clients to, or if they did, the professionals who were the recipients weren't on board with addressing um, whatever the clinician had identified, so we're, we're definitely very fortunate to have um, collaborative relationships with professionals who are willing to intervene if we, um, you know, send them our suspicions. And then it it also works for our advantage because I think in our last meeting, we talked about the fact that sometimes there are aspects of the airway that aren't visible to us as we're looking in. But one ENT I referred to did a scope and identified super large adenoids such that, um, this child who did indeed have, um, a restrictive frenulum was not, um, surgery wasn't performed. He was not considered a candidate for having that released because his airway was so compromised that releasing it could have actually caused, um, his airway to be compromised even more. So we, you know, we need that that kind of collaboration to know what's best for the clients. I
0: I have made my opinion clear that I feel that we overcut. Yes, absolutely. But there are certain kids, and my opinion is based on what the research says. So, I mean, it is out there. But there are children that absolutely need it repaired. Um, I have one little one that um, I am itching to get over to you. But um, we cannot due to the severity of the latex allergies. Otherwise, they would have been referred to you. Um, But um, we are homebound. Uh, And and that particular child had uh, uh, their lip phrenectomy repaired, their tongue phrenectomy repaired, has had adenoids, tonsils, and a supraglottoplasty. And we're still having a ton of issues. And unilateral hemiparesis status post seven CBAs. Wow. So when I see, oh yes, like all of my little ones, but the mom's a warrior mom and amazing. Uh, And, and I, it made me wonder, you know, we also have some hearing difficulties, but like, it made me wonder what about our kiddos that are neurologic? Are they Mm -hmm. candidates for this? Because I mean, this, the child's, Structural deficits. Some of them are anatomical, but some of what we're seeing is like he was generally born with the ties, correct? But the trauma during delivery resulted in the CVA that resulted in the hemiparesis. But it's like on his entire one side of his body. Would that pre- limit him from participating?
2: That's a good question. Uh, you know, again, it's hard to say that that condition alone would, because that may not impede his ability to follow the directions that are needed. So. Think of the exercises that I described earlier. Is this client able to attend in a session for at least 30 minutes where they're able to follow follow the clinician's instructions and, you know, execute various movements or perform certain tasks upon the therapist's requests to enable the the clinician to determine if the skill is being demonstrated or not? And if that's not the case, it's probably... um, You're probably going to intervene in much the same way you would with a younger client in that you are, instead of eliciting specific skills or, I'm sorry, behaviors from the client, you're maybe making recommendations for how they can safely eat or things that the parents can implement when you're not around. So it's more or less a modified approach as opposed to them following a specific treatment protocol.
0: Okay. What about our little ones that have Down syndrome? I'm thinking when they get older and they start having, um, and they, and they could follow the demand and the tasks, but a lot of those children have airway disorder issues. A lot of those children hold their tongue interiorly and have the enlarged, you know, palatine tonsils and adenoids. And I feel like they would benefit from this. Is, is this.
2: Yes. And you're you're right. You're exactly right. And it just depends. As you know, um, a, a client with Down syndrome—that's, you know, that's not—you can't say that every person who has Down syndrome is going to respond or, you know, interact the same way. That clinician who's working with that individual can make that decision based on what they know about the client's ability to, you know, participate in therapy, um, following directions, um, carryover activities, et cetera. But absolutely. Um, the fact that they have a diagnosis of Down syndrome does not um, pro- prohibit myofunctional therapy from, from being implemented.
0: Okay. All right. I, and, and one question that popped up that is, I'm asking at the end because, of course, I am because now it's here. But um, how is this different than just a, an, OROFI, an OMD? Oh, Lord, my I am glad you told me about the acronym. How is an OMD Addressing an OMD different than addressing a speech sound disorder.
2: Well, a speech sound disorder is one diagnostic area. An oral facial myofunctional disorder is a different diagnostic area. They are not the same um, diagnosis in an SLP scope. So these are the the CPT codes, right? This the okay and the um and the the ICD ten codes because you know there's one code for speech sound disorder there's a different one for oral facial myofunctional disorder even with the if you take away the billing aspect of it we are we have a very broad scope of practice addressing a fluency disorder is not the same as addressing a voice disorder addressing a language impairment is not the same as addressing a literacy impairment and in this case addressing a speech sound disorder is not the same as addressing a myofunctional disorder they're just different Um, diagnostic areas with different guidelines for implementing a client's evaluation for you to be able to diagnose them with that. Each area has its own set of guidelines to follow. So now it's interesting because there is some overlap in that a client who has an oral facial myofunctional disorder could have a speech sound disorder, but they're not one and the same.
0: Okay. Okay. Because yep.
2: they're not one and the same.
0: Oh my God! I just need to go take the
2: class. If, ah. if you're if you're ever in doubt again, think about what the term myofunction means. Myo is muscle. Function is skill. Um, muscle skill. And there's no mention of speech in that. Now, again, if a client does have an authentic myofunctional disorder that's been determined by you following a diagnostic protocol that's evidence-based, you could intervene for a related speech sound disorder. But the way that you determined that speech sound disorder was through a different set of strategies, a different diagnostic protocol that led you to believe or led you to conclude, I'm sorry, that a client did have a speech sound disorder. That's like, you can't give an artic test to determine that someone has a myofunctional disorder. Okay, there. That
0: that makes it.
2: You have a test or a phonological eval or some some sort of guideline that helps you compare this client to a much larger set of other individuals to determine that there's a deficiency. It's no different than you know with with a myofunctional disorder. You've got a standard protocol to follow. And at the end of you collecting that data, you compare the client of concern to a much larger set of individuals. It's just not it's not a standardized test, but you still know that, you know, tongue elevation should occur or that, you know, this is a typical resting posture or that they should be breathing through their their nose and not their mouth, et cetera.
0: Is there is there a workbook for the eval? Is there like a or is there like a flow sheet for the eval? For that's a good
2: question. If you go, if you well, first of all, I'm speaking from the perspective of having gone through the the training that is multidisciplinary in, in nature, involving SLPs, um, the fields of dentistry um, and, and orthodontics as well. But before I went to that course. There were still d- diagnostic protocols out there. Um, if you go to the ASHA website, for example, they give a lot of guidance for what you need to look at for an eval if you haven't gone through a course. So again, this is not new. This this field is not new. Fortunately, you know, we've got um, new evidence and new collaborations. And I think the, the clients involved will be better served because of that. But we've been treating myofunctional disorders for many years using other other tools that are out there. Um, It's you know again when you talked about uh, um, our our talk today when you introduced our talk today, you said that many clinicians have probably treated these disorders but just didn't realize it because of less information being available and that's unfortunately true. It's you know our scope is broad, even in you know, every um every clinician who goes through a training program is still subject to going through a program and not being exposed to this because it's a low incidence type of um or at least theoretically it's a low incidence disorder. It's not talked about as much as say Arctic or fluency or or language. But um it's out there and Dude, I would love the numbers on this because I
0: actually feel like And OMD is more prevalent than what we realize.
2: Yes. People just aren't as maybe attuned in what to look for because it's less talked about. Like if you listen to a person speak and there's something that's not quite right with the sounds, that's immediately evident. But that's not particularly the case with a myofunctional disorder. If you don't watch them swallow or if you're, your um, myofunctional therapist's eyes are not on them to observe that they are breathing through their mouth all the time or, you know, other things that you are trained as an, uh, to observe as a myofunctional therapist, you could overlook them. So.
0: So, so bottom line, when in doubt, refer out, refer to the ENT, the dentist. If you are not certified as an orofacial myologist, then refer to someone who
2: is. Because, Or if, you know, in the situation, what if you're a therapist who is solely responsible for addressing whatever comes your way because of, you know, you living in a remote community? um, There's still resources that are out there that you can do some sort of an effective job to um, perhaps get started until you can refer the client elsewhere. So
0: yes, okay. all right. and and those we can find on asha or the website. what is what is the what is the um orofacial myology website? If
2: um, I think in the last um I referred you to two of them. One of them is the International Association of oral Facial Myology, the i i a o m and the other one is um dot com dot com
0: okay. This is y'all, I, I, we prefaced the last one with, you know, I, I I was very honest and candid about being on the fence on this. Okay. And then because of some personal bad experiences, right? A few bad apples can ruin the mass. Right. But, uh, after talking with Dr. Angela, after seeing firsthand her work, And then doing the last lecture. And then this one, like this is, I mean, it's like a billion dollars to do it. I'm not going to joke. It's really expensive to go do the training. So once the pandemic is done, and the savings account has been replenished, um, this is on my to do list for sure. And I highly encourage each and every one of y'all to go look at them, uh, to go check out the coursework and and see some places have the benefits where they're willing to pay for your continuing yet. And if you have that as a luxury, then please seriously consider doing this. Um, Angela, is there anything that we haven't covered or anything you haven't said that you want to address
2: or... I don't think sure. so. Again, I just, again, reiterate that, you know, there are resources out there. Again, even the ASHA website gives um, guidance for getting started. And of course, if you can um, collaborate with someone who's had the training, you'll, you know, benefit from that. But I would not want any therapists to... Um, withhold giving some sort of assistance to a family even in in the form of just education and training regarding things that they can do to be safer when they're they're eating um, because they haven't had the training because treating myofunctional disorders is within the SLP scope sort cert- of certified or not so beautiful yay thank you, <laughs> thank you. i appreciate this opportunity <laughs>
0: I love learning from you. You, you always, my grandma always said, if you're the smartest person in the room, get out, find a new room. And whenever you enter the room, I'm always like, I'm going to learn today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hang on one second. I got to switch this over to questions. Okay. Okay. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance.